Hello there and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we're in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And today we're continuing our series on missionaries and money and uh, funding our ministries uh, on support versus uh, working to, um, to support our ministries ourselves. And we've taken a quick survey of the Bible. We looked at... Um, the priestly system and how the priests basically got their money from the temple system, from free will offerings, from temple sacrifices, and um, from other sorts of sacrifices, things given to the temple would be given to the priests so that they could live. Uh, we saw under Nehemiah this was reestablished, and when people stopped paying the priests and Levites, they all went home to uh, work their fields, and so Nehemiah had to reestablish that they should be paid so that they would keep working. Um, because if you don't pay somebody, you can't expect him to work, can you? Um, and uh, we saw how the um, the prophets in the Old Testament were a little bit of a gray zone because they didn't have access to the temple treasuries, uh, and it was never said that they should. And so they found, um, they sustained themselves either with tent making in some places or in um, uh, communal living in hospitality, and sometimes with sponsorship being sponsored by the king or other people. Um, it does seem as though uh, some prophets had wealth as well because Jeremiah bought a field. Um, uh, Elisha had a house that Naaman came to visit Elisha at his house. Um, so, yeah, some of them had wealth as well. Uh, Jesus, when he started his ministry, um, did not... Uh, did not work, and he um, again relied on uh, hospitality, on gifts, and on um, plucking fruit that that was left over in the fields, which was um, God's way of providing for for people that didn't have resources of their own. Um, and the early apostles also, once they started their ministry after Pentecost, they we don't see them working anymore. Their full time ministry. Um, and they seem to be supported by communal living and by gifts coming into the church. Um, now we're up to Paul. And Paul is really important because we know a lot more about Paul than we know about anybody else. A good half of the book of Acts chronicles his missionary journeys. And it gives us a really important... And then, um, you know, he wrote most of the epistles in the New Testament. So we have a really good access to his mind and his life during his ministry years. And um, this is also important because a lot of people, uh, I mean, I've heard it more than one time uh, from numerous people that, hey, why are you doing ministry uh, with the support model? Why don't you do tent-making ministry? And so um, we're going to have a look, and that comes from Paul because he knew how to make tents, as we're going to see, and he supported himself that way. So let's have a look at Paul's ministry and how this relates to our subject today. So Paul was born around 4 AD, about, he's about four years younger than Jesus, four to nine years, depending exactly when Jesus was born. We're a little bit unclear when he was born. Um, very clear on when he died, though, as is often the case in, in uh, ancient history. He seems to have come from wealth. Um, he, he was fairly well, high up in, um, in circles in, uh, in the Jerusalem system there. Uh, his early life, 15 to 20 A.D., he was a student. Um, he may have been employed by the temple uh, somewhere between 31 to 34. 
Uh, certainly he was in the milieu of um, the Pharisees and Sadducees, um, not the Sadducees, but with the Pharisees in, uh, in Jerusalem, in the uh, power structures that were there. And um, around 34, he converted to Christianity uh, and uh, on the famous road to Damascus. And um, then we begin looking at how he lived. So while he was... We know somehow that he made tents, uh, but there's no mention of when he was making tents, um, if he was employed as a tradesman and also volunteered his time at the temple. We just don't really know. But somehow in there, he had learned how to make tents. Um, in Acts 9 is when he um, became converted. He was blinded on the road to Damascus, and uh, God miraculously blinded and then healed him. And he became a Christian, and he right away started preaching the gospel in the synagogues. And he stayed with the disciples right away after he got his sight back. Um, they gave him some food to eat. And uh, there's no mention of him working. Uh, he, he spent all his time debating and arguing and refuting the Pharisees from the scriptures and proving that Jesus was the Messiah. Um, but al although, granted, a lot of this is an argument from silence, we don't hear of him working, but it's possible that he could have worked. Uh, he traveled around. He went to Jerusalem. He went to Arabia. He came to. He went to Tarsus. Tarsus uh, came back to Jerusalem. Eventually, in 46 A.D., he was sought out by Barnabas, um, who and brought to Antioch. And Barnabas and Paul taught at Antioch, which kind of became the center. After Jerusalem, kind of became the center of Christianity. A lot of people were leaving Jerusalem because of the persecution from the Jew Jewish uh, authorities. And so Antioch kind of became the center. And then a few years after this, at 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed. And so Antioch was really the center of um, Christianity until Rome took over around the turn of the first century. I'm not sure exactly. but So Antioch is just a little bit further up the coast. And around 47, after spending uh, just under a year or so in Antioch, they were sent out by the church on their first missionary journey, which was... From 46 to 49, I have written down here, so um, I have a conflict in dates here, but it's somewhere around that time. And that's recorded in Acts 13 to 15. And um, I have a note here that's likely financially they were sent out, because for the whole first missionary journey, um, you don't hear anything about Paul working. Uh, they travel across the Mediterranean to um, the island in the middle, which is Cyprus, I believe. Uh, and no, not Cyprus, uh, Sicily, and then they move uh, over to um, the north coast of the Mediterranean, and they travel around in there. Um, and they they meet a lot of churches or a lot of synagogues, plant a lot of churches. There's never any mention of them working. They're preaching, they're preaching, they're preaching, they're traveling, um, and so it certainly seems as though the church was helping them in some way to send them out. Uh, second missionary journey. They, so they come back when there's a debate regarding regarding circumcision that drives them back to Jerusalem to bring the matter before the apostles. Um, after that, in 50 to 52, they have the second missionary journey. They're sent out again by the church. And this time in 1614, we read that um, they're definitely welcomed by somebody into their home. Um, and so we see hospitality as one of the ways um, that they're able to do their ministry. And then we see tent making come up. And they're in Corinth at this point. And uh, so we'll read more about that when we get to the book of Corinthians. But 
Um, Paul stays with uh, Priscilla and Aquila, who are tent makers, and he helps them in their tr- in their trade, and they pay him for his work, and so he's able to pay for his keep while he's there. Interestingly enough, I should read this. Uh, we're in Acts. In Acts 18. So, Paul has got a bunch of traveling companions. Um, John Mark, um, Barnabas, uh, Timothy, and a bunch of people, and Luke probably for a while, and a lot of other people that aren't mentioned, um, or that are mentioned very briefly. But at this point, he shows up in Corinth. Where are we here? 18.1. Either alone or just with a few people. And he left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them. And because he was the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So here we have a situation where he's working weekdays, on um, the Sabbath, which would have been Saturday, he's going to the synagogue to try and reason with, with uh, the Jews and try and persuade them that Jesus is the Christ. But, verse 5, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So, for a short time, he, um, he did tent making. Uh, but when his traveling companions came, his junior associates, his his protégés, people he was mentoring, they took over the work, and he preached full-time. It seemed important to him, in this case, that he wasn't imposing on um, the hospitality and generosity of Priscilla and Aquila, but that um, the community, the the group of people there, they were uh, paying their own keep. And we'll find out why in uh, the book of Corinth. The third missionary journey... um, Again, he sent out, he travels a lot, um, and so the third missionary journey is from 53 to 58, which ends in Jerusalem when he gets captured and um, eventually ends up before Nero, and that's where the book of Acts ends. But he makes a speech in Acts 20, 33 to 35. Um, Well, 33 to 35 is the relevant portion for our discussion. He says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So he says to the Ephesians, um, and you'll have to read it to get the context of this, but um, on his way back through after the third missionary voyage, um, Yeah, so he's coming back, and this is his kind of farewell tour, and he was telling people as he was going, I'll never see you again, right before he got captured, and he knew prophetically that this was the end. Um, and he's kind of giving them last words, and he says, look, I never took your money. Um, I worked for free. And he supported himself through tent-making ministry. So then for the rest of Paul's life, he's in prison, and um, or the rest of the book of Acts, he's in prison. Uh, tradition has it that he was killed by the emperor Nero, um, probably in either 63 or 66. Um, and that's kind of the end of the information we have about him. 
So we know for sure Paul did at times uh, live on tent making. Uh, he would travel to a place. He had a job that um, he could do um, by distance or at least with with Priscilla and Aquila that were set up and had a shop. He was able to help them and find employment that way. Uh, he also lived on, on hospitality um, in a number of places when he first got saved. He, um, he Okay, that's actually a different issue. But for sure... Um, with Lydia, when he when he lived with Lydia, where was that? Um, in sixteen fourteen, he lived on hospitality, and he received the hospitality that um, Jesus told his disciples to go with somebody, find a person of peace, stay at their house, eat their food, and preach the gospel. Um, he seems at times to have lived on the community. So certainly, when the other disciples came, Timothy and somebody else, uh, they took over the work and. And his friends worked, his, his co-workers worked while he was freed up to do full-time ministry. Um, as well, when he was healed in Damascus, it seems as though he lived on the communal food uh, and was preaching in the synagogues um, while, while other people were feeding and housing him. He had a private sponsor, and he took private donations from people, such as in the book of Philemon, um, there's the case of uh, Onesimus, and Onesimus is a wealthy um, person who has means, and apparently it seems as though he has hosted Paul in the past, and he asks if he can stay there in the future again. Um, but there's the issue of Philemon, who is a slave who's escaped from Onesimus's uh, household, and um, he, through circumstances that we don't know, um, what exactly happened, but he ended up getting saved and hanging out with Paul. And um, so Paul, um, you know, I guess let him stay for a while, but eventually was like, look, you know, this, this guy owns you, uh, and, and, you know, you need to do what's right by the laws of our land in our time. Um, sends Philemon back to Onesimus with a letter that says, would you please free this man and then give him to me as a free man? Uh, so that he can serve me, so he can be similar to Timothy and Titus, he can be my protege, and I can make him into, um, you know, a missionary for the next generation. So I'm saying that Paul is asking for a gift here, and he's asking for a fairly large one. Um, it's hard to know exactly what a slave would have been worth in those days, um, but if you can just think about um, an average day's work is worth around $100, um, maybe 150 to 200 if it's skilled work. But if you multiply that by 365 days of the year, um, times this a young man, able-bodied it seems like, uh, so he's got you know, a good 20, 30 years ahead of him, you start doing the math and saying, this guy's worth, I mean, a slave is a very valuable asset. And Paul is saying, look, I would really like you to give me this guy. Um, free him and then give him to me as as a protege. Um, it was a very big ask that he was asking of Onesimus. Um, and it seems as though he received gifts um, like that often, and he asked for gifts. Um, Philippians is a book that he wrote after, after he received a gift from the church. And uh, he talked um, at the end of Philippians about his gratitude to them. And how, 
in Philippians 4.15, You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. Uh, for even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So, the the church in, in Philippi is is continually giving to his support. And um, he's he wrote the letter of Philippians specifically to thank them, also to kind of you know, preach a sermon to them, bless them, encourage them, give them um, spiritual nurture, uh, uh, spiritual nurture in their faith. Um, and so he was definitely receiving gifts all the time from churches so that he could continue in his work um, as well. And I know that we've already covered this, but Romans fifteen twenty four is an instance where he specifically asked for money. Uh, it says. Whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, and to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Right. And so, last time I read this too, it's it's kind of hard to just read that and, and understand what's going on. But he's talking about how he's wanted to visit Rome, and now he's going to visit Rome. He wants to visit them for a while. Uh, but he wants to be helped on his way to Spain um, by the Romans. So he wants the Romans uh, to pay his probably his seafare um, from from Italy over to um, Spain. And um, this verse, to me, um, helps to fill in the gaps for, and I, I mentioned it's kind of an argument from silence uh, that you don't see Paul working, you see the church sent him out with prayer. But right away he gets on a ship and he heads out um, across the Mediterranean. He travels and he's on the road. Uh, he, he hits a lot of villages fairly a lot of cities pretty close back to back, and then he comes back without having to stop, without having to um, to you know make a make tents for a year before he can continue his his voyage. It seems as though when it says the church sent him out, they would have sent him out with some money to at least buy the first um, the first ship voyage. Um, let's let's remember again, as I said, I mean there isn't a magic pink money ferry that just drops money on missionaries to enable them to do journeys. Uh, if they're going to travel for ministry, they, somebody's got to foot the bill. Uh, and here he's saying specifically, I want to be helped on my way by you. He's asking for money uh, because he wants to preach the gospel in Spain. Um, this is what he does. This is what he's awesome at. Uh, he plants churches wherever he goes, and he just wants to be helped on his way. So let's break it down here. And so, let's read this. First uh, Corinthians 9 says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? So these are all his proofs of why he's an apostle. He's seen the Lord and he has um, proven workmanship. He's planted churches. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a, refrain, a right to refrain from working? So he's saying, look, I am an apostle. You, these are my proofs. I've seen the Lord, and you are the living proof that I have planted churches, that I've done Christian work. Therefore, I have rights. I have a right to eat and drink. I have a right to take along a believing wife, and I have a right to refrain from working. Three rights that he has as an apostle. And then he's going to provide his defense of this. Number one, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? 
who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it, or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock. Three examples, a soldier, a vine dresser, and a shepherd. They all take care of something, they have a job to do, and they earn their living from the job that they do. I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it's written in the law of Moses. So he gives an example from everyday life, first of all. Because, well, it's hard to say why, but I'm thinking there might have been more Gentile people in the Corinthian church. But then he comes back and says, I'm not just using human judgment, am I? Let's look at what the Bible says. It's written in the law of Moses. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Isn't he speaking for our sake? Yes, for our sake it's written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. So you would use the ox or the cow, I think I already spoke about this, I'm sorry, um, uh, to, to break up the hard grains of, of grain, the, the outer shell, to get to the grain inside. So you'd use him just walking on, the, on your grain um, on a hard surface, and that would break it open for you. But you wouldn't, in the Old Testament, says don't muzzle the ox because he should be able to eat some grain while he's treading this, um, while he's working. And this is, again, a mental picture that, um, at, at, like, as it is very clearly described in the Old Testament, people working in the temple get, you know, they get their living from working in the temple, just as soldiers get their living from the army, farmers get their living from the farm, etc., if we sowed spiritual things to you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So now he's introducing a new concept. He's saying, look, we, we preached to you. We, we gave you spiritual stuff. Um, and he, it's, he, he says, like, sowing seeds. Is it too much to then reap a material harvest? Then because we sowed this to you, we should reap, we should get money back or material things. If others share the right over you, did we not more? Much more. Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things. So we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. So that's just a parenthesis. Um, I want to get back to his argument here. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? Um, so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So, Paul has this very clear argument here. Um, I am free. I'm an apostle. Uh, and um, what are my proofs of an apostle? I have seen the Lord Jesus Christ and I have planted churches. Therefore, I have rights. What are my rights? I have the right to uh, eat and drink. I have the right to take along a believing wife on my journeys. And uh, my, my wife and my kids have a right to eat and drink as well. And also have a right to refrain from working. I shouldn't have to work to provide for myself. I should be able to uh, work full-time in the ministry. How does he prove this? Looking at soldiers, vine dressers, farmers, and then looking at the Bible, what it says about muzzling the ox. And um, again, going back to natural examples, talking about a plowman or a farmer. Um, and he says, look, if, we, if we're working here in the church, we should and we're sowing spiritual things into you guys and your lives are better and you're benefiting from that and you're learning more about God you're, you're growing in your faith there should be reciprocity to give him back 
And he sums it up um, in verse 14, which is kind of the key of this whole argument. So also the Lord directed that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. I, I read that wrong. Let me just read it again. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So this is um, the most important passage. We're going to talk about missionaries and money. This is where Paul lays it out, how it should be. This is the normal standard of um, ministry, is not tent making, but being supported in your ministry. But, Paul continues, But I have used none of these things, and I'm not writing these things so that it will be done in my case. For it would be better for me to die than any man make my boast an empty one. Uh, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. So, okay, and what is, then is my reward, verse 18, that when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as to make the full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more. And he goes on about being all things to all people. Um, so he's saying, look, I have rights as an apostle. I need you to understand that I have rights. You should be paying me um, for my preaching. You should be paying me for my work. But guess what? I came and I did ministry absolutely free. And you saw me. I was working hard with my own two hands um, over there with uh, Priscilla and Aquila. And then the other disciples came and, and they worked hard so that I could be freed up. He doesn't go there right in this part. Um, but that's also part of the picture. But um, he's saying, look, the reason I did this was so that I could boast. And I could say, look, I offered the gospel to you guys for free. And this was a point of pride for him. Uh, that he was able to preach the gospel for free to the Corinthians. Now, um, as we read more, and this was a personal thing. He, he very clearly lays out what are the norms for apostles, what are the norms for ministry workers. Um, and then he says, what I'm doing is an exception. I'm doing something different um, because he wants special recognition. Uh, we talk a lot about humility, and humility is really important, but Paul is not ashamed to say, I'm proud of this. This is something I'm boasting about. I am storing up treasures in heaven. I am going above and beyond um, to to gain respect or, or to do something that I'm really proud of. And I think that's that's legitimate. Uh, we should, you know, try and outdo each other in doing good for the Lord, as, as Paul says in one place, in one of the epistles, I'm not sure exactly where. Now, um, even in Corinth, and as we've mentioned, Paul used um, a number of different models. He received money, he asked for money, he did tent working, tent, tent making. He lived on hospitality. He relied on um, on community, communal living. Um, so he he does all of these different models depending on his situation. He isn't stuck on one. And even in Corinth, um, he's not stuck on only doing one thing. In Second Corinthians um, eleven eight. So we have two letters that he wrote to Corinth. There was probably at least four. There might have been more. Uh, but it seems as though there was a letter before 1 Corinthians. And then it seems as though uh, Paul sent a letter that was really harshly written and caused pain uh, in between the two Corinthians. And then 
Second Corinthians, he said, I'm sorry I sent you a letter that caused so much pain, but, you know, it was necessary and blah, blah, blah. And so then there's Second Corinthians. But we've, we've, we don't have all of the letters that Paul wrote. Um, and some people would say there wasn't a letter in between. But anyways, I'm just uh, giving you some trivia here, Bible trivia. Second Corinthians 11.8. Um, Paul says, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was no burden to anyone. For when brethren came from Macedonia, uh, and Macedonia is where Philippi would be. So again, this Philippian church comes up over and over as um, a huge donor of Paul. They fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you, and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boast of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Achaia. So it's super important for Paul, for some reason, to not be a burden on the Corinthians. And whether it's because he's working, or because his friends are working, or because he's quote-unquote robbing other churches, he refuses to be sponsored or to receive money from, from the Corinthians church, which is strange. It's really, you're like, why? What's, what's the big deal? He's got no problem asking Onesimus for, you know, a slave, a you know, hugely, like, $100,000 gift or something like that. Um, he's got no problem asking the Romans to buy him a ticket uh, to go from Italy over to Spain. He's got no issue, um, you know, asking Lydia to stay with him, with her, or, or things like that. And yet he will not receive money from Corinth. And it's hard to say exactly why, but uh, one speculation that I've I read in, in some of my studies long time back in Bible school and we were studying 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is that um, the Corinthian people uh, would have um, the traveling sages is an established that there were sages that would travel around that would teach and Greek people would uh, take these people under their wing this isn't a Jewish custom this is a Greek custom and they would kind of patronize them. They would sponsor them. And then this this sage, whether he was a Platonist or he was a Stoic or, or, or whatever, he would speak and teach, but he would kind of, as best as he could, make his sponsor look good. And the sponsor, if he didn't like what he was saying, had a right to kind of be like, hey, you know, stop saying that and, and say more of this because, hey, remember who butters your bread. And... Um, as long as Paul was receiving money from people like the Philippians in Macedonia that, you know, just gave out of a full heart and just for the love of Paul and his ministry were like, hey, take our money and go plant another church. He was, well, he was very willing, very grateful, humbled by that sort of an attitude and generosity. In Corinth, it seems as though, um, I mean, Corinth was just a really, really, really troubled church. And you really get that when you read First and Second Corinthians, like, wow. Please, God, you know, send me to Africa if you want, but don't send me to Corinth uh, to pastor a church like this. Um, you know, they got incest and they got, um, what else? Just, well, they, they've got a bunch of spiritual gifts, but also like pride and competition and all sorts of weirdness in their church. And um, it seems as though they had a really arrogant spirit and some people in the church that were domineering and would have given mon money to Paul, but with strings attached and so, like, if, if Paul had asked them for, if Paul had asked Philemon from them or, or a large gift like that, they would have been like, sure, 
by the way, when you got when you coming back again? Uh, because uh, we sure would like to see you again, and we sure would like to hear about this and this and this topic, and not about this and that topic, because now we've got power over you, uh, because we've given you a gift. So it seems as though Paul, like he doesn't state why, he just says for some reason he doesn't want to receive money from the Corinthians. Um, likely it was because he didn't want to be sponsored by people that would have had strings attached to it. Um, but whatever the reason, um, Paul does lay out that um, tent making is a very noble thing, and it's something that you can boast about. That hey, I'm not taking money from anybody. I'm ten- I'm supporting myself. I'm in ministry. Yay me, and yay you. I mean, yay anybody that's doing that. We did that for the first seven years of our marriage. I worked full time, or well, I supported our, us completely um, working, and for most of that time, I was a garbage man. And then I was driving the garbage truck, but still, you know, some shifts running in the back, throwing garbage in the back. And that's how I supported my wife, who stopped working when we had babies and when we had kids. And paid my way through seminary and bought a house and renovated the house. And um, and at the same time, we were donating, you know, our time. to We were volunteering at our church, and we had a young adults group. And I preached on Sundays, and I did a podcast, and I did a blog, and... And um, it was a great time. And it's something that I take a lot of pride in is that, you know, graduated debt-free and gave a ton of time to my church, made a really great impact, I think, in our local church. Um, And there's something really holistic and beautiful about that. We still kind of, as a family, look back at that time as kind of the golden years in our life because there's something so rich and so wholesome about being plugged into the community, loving the people, uh, working hard, and then giving your time on the side. But we felt called eventually um, to go into full-time ministry, as Paul was. And as he says, um, you know, I'm an apostle, uh, you are my work in the Lord. God had called us to a work, a, a big work, that would take travel, that would take time, that would take resources. And so, you know, we raised support, as Paul did, um, asking people for money to um, to do what God called us to do. And so, let's just ask specifically, directly, is Paul here saying that tent making is the only way to do ministry? Um, I think that anybody that reads 1 Corinthians 9 and really stops to look at this would have to say the answer is no, because he is so clearly saying, look, I have rights. I have rights to be fed. I have right to, for my wife to come along and also be fed. And you know, as he explains elsewhere, if you're married, have sex and have kids. Um, and so our kids should also be fed. And I have a right to um, refrain from working, to give myself completely to the ministry. But then he's saying, but in this case, in Corinth, I will not work. And uh, again, I mentioned in, in Acts, it says apparently he did the same thing in Ephesus, although um, in other places he very clearly um, received money. So, it, you know, it, at some times, in some places, he said, I'm not going to work, I'm going to work with my own hands. Um, as a pride thing, also as uh, a demonstration of what it means to work hard, um, and also as. Uh, as a way to avoid having strings attached. But it's so clear that um, 
He's upholding the standard that was laid out by Jesus. He's up, up for, his, for himself and for his disciples. He's upholding the standard in the Old Testament of the temple supporting the priesthood and, and things like that. So I don't at all think that Paul um, is teaching here that, uh, that it's invalid to receive money for ministry because you can just take any of these verses as they are. Um, do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Boom, there it is. 1 Corinthians 9, 13-14. And because Paul um, had this special decision that doesn't invalidate what he said here. Also, and because... Um, I think I can just talk briefly about George Mueller here. George Mueller, if you study him and read some of the things he said, he wasn't mandating his way of life for everybody. And he was very clear about that. He's saying, what I'm doing is special to prove that God still works, God still answers prayer. And he was making his life kind of this special um, like object lesson to the world. And, and so I don't think even George Mueller was saying, look, everybody needs to do this. Everybody needs to stop asking for donations. But if he was, he has no biblical warrant for that. He would have had to say that the Apostle Paul was, um, was sinning in how he was asking for money. Um, because it's, it's clear that we're, it's legitimate to ask for money. It's legitimate to live on the gospel. And we need to be really clear and careful. I mean, if God calls you to something extreme and exciting and cool, that's great. You know, go do it. But don't try and say that everybody needs to live the same way that you do. Uh, God has a different call for other people. And some people have a vow of poverty. Some people have, you know, decide that for them they're going to do tent making. Some people decide they're going to do full-time ministry. Um, that's fine. You know, do what you're going to do. But I think it's so important to safeguard um, the biblical teaching here on money that um, in a normal situation, people that work in the church or on the mission field should be paid for their work. Because otherwise, the bottom line is, if people don't get paid, they can't work. Um, and so, yes, if you have a good job, if you have personal resources, you can fund yourself to a certain point. But there's a lot of ministries that simply cannot happen unless people are funded. Uh, Paul could not have planted the churches he planted unless he was funded. He could not have done the travels he did unless he was funded. Um, Hudson Taylor and... Um, uh, David Livingston could not have traveled to Africa and did what they did just on their own resources. Um, and the same is true for a lot of people today. Okay, there's more I could say, but I'm going to try and um, and just end this series and this, this specific podcast with um, why do I care so much? And um, you might be listening to this and thinking, uh, well, he cares because he's a missionary and he wants to make sure he's making lots of money. Um the reason this subject really um, is passionate for me is because I care about um, missionary kids, missionary wives, and pastors' kids and pastors' wives. And the bottom line is, look, um, if, if you do a hard ministry, oftentimes he gets the glory and she carries the burden. Uh, I mean, most of the time we're talking about a family and ministry, and if if they're going to the end of the earth and, and going to go preach in 
deepest, darkest jungle of, of wherever, we remember his name and we talk about what he did and all the amazing thing obstacles that he overcame. Very rarely do we talk about the kids and the wife and what they overcame. Um, and that's always true. The, the more difficult it is, the more glory he gets. But really, she's carrying more and more burdens. And um, if, if you're overseas and your support is only 70%, only at 60%, look, he's still able to go out and do the things he's doing. He's still able to preach the gospel. He's still you know, driving his motorbike down the street and, and waving to shopkeepers and, and building relationships and, and you know, doing his ministry that he's passionate about. Back home, the wife is is wondering about finances and, and how can she survive and she can't buy the things she needs to make it work in a very difficult land and all that adds to the pressure that then gets passed on to the kids and that gets passed on to their marriage. We haven't been doing this very long, um, four years now, but in that time we've seen two people, uh, well three, that tried to get into missions couldn't raise all their support uh, and so had to go back to their lives came close all of them to bankrupting themselves um, hugely crippling financially um, those who were in full-time ministry we saw two marriages fall apart um, and in both of those cases um, the ministry support dried up and they had to try and pick up the pieces of their lives um, as separated peoples, uh, as divorced, and um, at least in the case of one, they were overseas for a long time, and they were living on 70% support, 60% support, and you just wonder how much that pressure, um, you know, affected their marriage, because most marriages break up over money and money issues. Um, and for ourselves, I mean, we went through a really difficult journey, and I really feel so blessed that I had, we had great support, we had a great mission that made sure we went over with 100% support, that made sure we had a buffer, so that when things didn't work out, when, when things went bad, um, we had the money to buy a plane ticket back home, we had the money to, to, to re-establish ourselves in, on a new mission field in Quebec. Um, we had the support network there, and, uh, if I can get back to K.P. Yohanan just briefly in, in his book, Revolutions and World Missions, at, at certain points he's really critical on missionaries and how much money they waste on vacations and buying a pool for the backyard and this and that and the other. And, you know, I was reading it before I was a missionary. I was like, yeah, that's so, you know, materialistic. And when I'm a missionary, you know, I'm going to be extreme. I'm not going to get that stuff. I'm going to live like the people. I mean, look, that stuff is great for Mr. Missionary. Um but who's suffering with the kids that are going through, you know, extreme culture shock with, you know, heat exhaustion and things like that? It's the wife. And, you know, we did have a pool in our backyard, just a little inflatable thing. And, man, that made a difference. Um, we got a membership. We spent, you know, I mean, it was a pool membership. It was several hundred dollars for the family. Um, but we were able to go to the um, American consulate, and they had a swimming pool there. And for a few hours, once a week, we felt like normal human beings again. Um, and we had friends and the kids splashed and, and had fun and those were some of the best memories. And, and we ate salad without feeling like we were going to die from it. Um, 
those moments when you're living under so much stress and you're worrying about riots and you're worrying about, I mean, I was kidnapped in the street in front of our house and, you know, threatened with beatings and death. And that was a reality of living there, you know, to go into a place where you know you're safe and your kids can have fun. Um, you know what? That's worth it. Uh, that is a necessity of life. It's, it's the sort of thing that gives you mental energy to face another week. Um, and it's, it's talking about, it's giving your, your missionaries enough money to do their job enables them to do things like that, that give them mental health, that give them physical strength. Um, even, you know, towards the end of our time, we stopped going to the market as much and I started paying somebody $2 to just give him a shopping list and said, go borrow my stuff because, you know, you get swarmed with beggars and merchants and, and it just like depletes you for a whole day and a half just going to the market to get stuff so I just hire somebody to do it if you have resources you can do things like that and then it gives you more energy to you know do the ministry that you're there for so I feel really passionate ab- against the idea of missionaries should be poor missionaries should be you know living on um, whatever they can get out of the missionary barrel, you know, and they should be scraping by, they should be living on 60-70% of what what the mission says they should be living on. Um, I have a really hard time thinking that pastors should be living at 60-70% of whatever, you know, middle class is, um, that their kids should should be wearing handy-made out clothes, that they they should stand out from, from people around them as obviously being poor. And why? Seriously, why? Uh, what does this say about our prioritization of God and His work? What does this say about us and our generosity? What does it say about how we estimate our pastor and His work? It says again, you know, those who work hard in preaching and teaching are worthy of double honor. I think we need to honor our Christian workers, um, and the way, the best way to honor them is to love their wives and love their kids, and give them resources uh, to love them well. So yeah, again, I, there are more things I could say, but I think we'll leave it there on a three-podcast uh, series. And I'm just going to end it here in prayer. Lord, I want to thank you for money, and I thank you that you have allowed us as humans to develop a monetary system where assets can be transferred easily from one person to another. And uh, we're no longer bringing sheep and oxen to a temple, um, but it can be as easy as a snap of a finger to send a missionary on the other side of the world um, a large amount of money and I pray Jesus that people would be um, that your resources over here would be freed up to help people over there and that your gospel will go forth and I pray especially for the women and the kids that um, that are brought along that are dragged along by the passion of their husbands uh, in a lot of cases and obviously their wives are, are also passionate but I pray Lord that they'd be cared for they'd be supported they'd be loved um, by the generosity of people that uh, love you and I pray Lord that your your good gospel would go forth and would make a difference in this world in Jesus name Amen